Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're remembering the events of 9-11, the terrorist attack on American soil on September the 11th, 2001, when the world changed forever. And we'll also be discussing the war on terror which followed. We'd love to hear your thoughts and views. You can email us at talkinghistory at newstalk.com. And we'd also love to hear your suggestions for other shows in the weeks and months ahead. Last week, we found out about the Scottish woman who helped save the life of Bonnie Prince Charlie by disguising him as an Irish maid. And we also went exploring the Himalayas. And there was lots more besides in our September book show. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to our News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Today marks the 21st anniversary of the terrorist attack on the United States on the 11th of September 2001, also known as 9-11. And to discuss what happened and how it changed America and the world, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Daniel Geary, Mark Piggott Professor of American History at Trinity College Dublin, and Professor Edward Spears, Professor Emeritus of Strategic Studies at the University of Leeds, who contributed to the collection of essays 9-11, 10 Years After, Perspectives and Problems, edited by Dr. Rachel Utley. Well, you're both very welcome. And Dan, I might begin with you. Uh, I suppose... The way 9-11 changed the world forever, because it's, I think for anyone who was maybe seven or older when it happened, it's something that you'll always remember. You'll remember where you were when you heard it. And it's one of those events that's seared in your memory. Uh, absolutely. It was, uh, you know, I think the like the Kennedy assassination for people of that particular uh, generation, anyone who was you like you say, you know, uh, sort of uh, a bit older at that time, couldn't tell you exactly what they were doing uh, when it happened, and can I mean I think I can remember the the experience of it. There was a lot of uh, shock and uncertainty, really, um, not just that day, but for uh, for for weeks after. People really didn't know, you know, exactly what this event was was going to mean. Uh, it was a period of real anxiety and uncertainty. And of course, when the first plane hit, people didn't know whether this was an accident, uh, just a, an airline, an aircraft accident. or uh, And then when the second one hit, then realising that something much more terrible was going on. And there was, as you say, all that confusion in those in those early, early hours, early days, because was this going to be the first of many attacks? What was going to happen next? And, and really a lot of fear and confusion. Yeah, I, I'll say myself. I mean, this, I had a different experience because I was living in California at the time, so we were three hours behind. So I woke up to it, um, and then when I called people on the East Coast, they were kind of already processing things at a, at a different speed. Uh, and events went on. I mean, people were in shock, but some some events went on kind of as normal um, in California. So I, I think there was a general sense of shock and anxiety, but depending on where was one was specifically, that could be very different. And of course, if you were in New York City at the time, um, you know, you would have a, a much more intense experience than uh, if, you, if you were elsewhere, I suppose, if you're at the Pentagon or in, in parts of Washington, D.C. as well. Edward, when you when when you evaluate it 21 years on, it's interesting that there's still elements and big parts of the story that are shrouded in confusion and uncertainty, even down to the motivations of Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, uh, whether there was any significance for uh, that particular date being chosen for the attack and so on, that, that not everything is known 21 years on. Uh, that's correct, uh, Patrick. Although there's enormous efforts to be made to gather intelligence and to 
sort of effect on on the whole process. Um, it's still not clear entirely. I mean, there is a theory, for example, that the actual date uh, 9/11 uh, commemorates the date of the uh, 11th of September 1683, when John Sobieski defeated the Muslims at the gates of Vienna and established Western dominance over uh, over uh, that part of Europe and the Middle East. Um, you know, then this is sort of uh, a, sim- a symbolic date um, in uh, the uh, somewhat warped uh, calendar of uh, of Al Qaeda's thinking. Uh, but you must remember too, of course, this wasn't the first attack on the World Trade Center. Um, in 1993, there was a you know another bomb planted there. So this you know the choice of of uh, site or one of the sites um, uh, and its symbolism. Uh, was was known to people. And Edward, do you think it represented a, a failure of, of American security and intelligence or was it just that there were so many different competing scraps of evidence that it was hard to to really work it out? Well, this is all part of the, you know, the post-event conspiracy theories. It's certainly as the 9-11 Commission pulled together and Richard Clark of the Counter-Terrorism Board uh, wrote a book on this. There were certainly bits of the evidence people knew about. The Al-Qaeda operatives were in the United States for uh, you know, several months uh, before the event. Some went to flying schools in Arizona and, and uh, in Minnesota. And there were reports about the strange questions they asked that went to intelligence agencies. But there were real problems of sharing intelligence across the CIA, uh, FBI uh, boundaries. Um, there was difficulties about acting on the intelligence because some of it was being gathered by legal wiretaps and the like. And so, you know, the Justice Department would have difficulty following it up. So, yes, there were fragments of information. Um, there were even warnings of a big attack pending, um, although the location was sometimes thought to be in the Middle East and not necessarily the United States. And of course, it was that great imaginative leap that they would have to make that the the airplanes themselves would be turned into the weapon that would be used for the attack. That, you know, it was something, you know, actually just straight out of the pages of Tom Clancy, who had who had something similar in one of his his novels, but that it was going to be hard to imagine that that you didn't need complex weapons for it, advanced technology or anything. You would just hijack the four airplanes. Well, that is absolutely right. I mean, if you look at the cost of the operation, they're estimated to be $400,000 and $500,000 spread over a year or two for 19 operatives using box cutters um, on the planes and four uh, of their operatives skilled in flying uh, aircraft. One point to bear in mind is the staggered effect of the flights on that morning. Um, uh, Air, American Airlines Flight 11, which left Boston at uh, 7.59 and was the first plane to uh, pile into the North Tower, was followed about 15 minutes later by United Airlines Flight 175. Now, after the first plane hit, and as Dan rightly said, nobody really knew whether this was an accident or whether this was uh, something else. Um, all the media stations in New York would have their, their helicopters up in the sky. And, of course, they got graphic images of the second aircraft plowing into the second tower, the south tower. 
which of course is the first one to fall. Dan, I wonder how how should we evaluate the political responses to it and in terms of the political leadership that we see? And I wonder our views may be influenced and maybe even tainted by what happens afterwards. So, for example, when we look at George Bush and the war on terror or we look at Rudy Giuliani, the mayor of New York, who, you know, for a time was hugely popular and became America's mayor, but of course now is 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 much damaged by his oh. defense of Donald Trump that in a way, the events subsequently have maybe influence and colour how we view the leaders at the time. I think that's right, but I, I think if we can go back, and I'll try to tie this in, uh, Patrick, the, we have to look, I suppose, at, at, yeah, there's a bit of a mystery of why the attack was on uh, on that date, on 9-11, you know, how it came about. But I think in general, in general we need to understand this as a, you know, a, a bit of a longer historical perspective as a, as a kind of a, a blowback. On the U.S. for uh, what it had been doing, you know, in uh, other parts of the of the world, it's uh, you know, good or bad, uh, whether you agree with it or not. I, I think it's kind of indisputable that uh, Al Qaeda, uh, you know, the, had a, a series of demands. The main one was the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Saudi Arabia, uh, and that Al Qaeda grew out of uh, U.S. support uh, in Afghanistan during the the Soviet uh, invasion. So, you know, you can't start the story, I think, at 9-11 if you want to understand why it happens. You have to go back into the history of American global power and the way that it reached across uh, the globe. Uh, and the, the thing about the period after 9-11, and I suppose we're going into the policymaking, is that that was completely absent from the discussion. History, it was a failure of, of history. Nobody wanted to talk about that. Uh, it was just a case of people saying, oh, well, these are... Uh, terrible, evil people, you know, who did this horrible thing, which, of course, uh, I think was true. But, you know, there was no attempt to understand, uh, you know, where they came from, what their motivations were, how it connected to, you know, what the U.S. had been doing uh, elsewhere. Um, and, and I think that, in a sense, that failure of history or, or historical thinking was, was necessary to the policies that, uh, that came after, which in many ways had little to do with addressing the um, you know that circumstance that actually led to the attack on 9/11. And in terms of the leadership, how would you evaluate that response in those in those initial days, weeks, and months? Well, if you're talking about the early days, I mean, I, I think that you know th- there was a period of uncertainty, I suppose, for for a few weeks. Uh, I think it's it's clear at the uh, at the top levels that already they were considering plans uh, for. Uh, certainly for the invasion of Afghanistan, but that uh, even Iraq was was on the table. Uh, but in terms of the, the public leadership, I mean, there was a, um, you know, Giuliani in, in New York, certainly he's a much discredited figure uh, today. But, uh, you know, I think that um, uh, I, I remember that he, he made a, a speech uh, against people who were trying to profiteer on the on the events in New York City that was made quite a pressure because my friend had been in New York and he left his, his car has been in a parking garage and the parking garage was trying to charge him, I don't know, like $1,000 for sleeping his car in the garage for a week. Um, so Giuliani came out, you know, against that. And, the you know, Bush, who at the time was, uh, wasn't a particularly popular uh, figure. He wasn't really unpopular either, but his popularity ratings, you know, shot up, you know, near, near 90% or so, which is, um, certainly unheard of for for a president today. So, you know, there was certainly a sense in those early days that the, the leaders were 
doing the right thing. They certainly projected confidence, but I think as, as things went on, uh, you, you know, um, and there, the plans became clear, especially at the, at the level of the Bush White House, you know, that confidence would really deteriorate over time. Edward, when you look at the the casualties, I think it's 2,977 people killed. Uh, Then you have about 25,000 injured. It's considered the deadliest terrorist attack in world history. That that had a hugely, I think, traumatic effect. You had all these stories of the heroism of the NYPD and the fire department and people running into the burning buildings. You had stories of... You know, just the, the the relatives of those who lost loved ones, the people on the planes, the people in the buildings, especially in the World Trade Center, that there was a huge amount of, of trauma connected to that tragedy. And it was a national tragedy in the United States, but in a way it kind of became a global tragedy as well as people around the world mourned as well. Oh, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, it was a colossal shock. I mean, Tony Blair puts it very well in his book about, you know, this was an event like none other. Everybody thought this was a warlike attack on the United States that was perceived as such. The analogy was always with Pearl Harbor, though in many respects being being mainland targets and targets of such iconic financial defense and potentially political significance so much more immediate in in its impact in the United States. And, you know, people were signing up for support, both internally, um, it was you know, the, the congressional approval of the authorization of military force is only on the 18th of, of November. I mean, it's within a, within a, a few days. Uh, a, a, a authorization, no termination date, no geographical boundaries, allowing the president discretion about where to use force. I mean, that goes through Senate with 98 eyes and no nays. And it goes through the House with 420 eyes and one nay. Um, so it, it, and, and that also, of course, allows detention of suspected terrorists and what would become the very controversial Guantanamo. So the response internally was huge. And of course, it was also a big response internationally um, with NATO uh, invoking for the very first time in its history, uh, the Collective Defense Clause Article 5. And that's deeply ironic, Patrick. Because when NATO was formed back in 1949 by the somewhat fearful and war-ravaged states of Western Europe, um, they were looking to America to protect them. They never for a moment expected that this treaty would now be used, would be invoked for the first time to solidarity with, with an America under attack. Dan, did America itself change afterwards, never mind the the political implications and what it meant in terms of the engagement with the wider world and the war on terror and so on. But there definitely seemed to be an inc- a rallying around the flag effect, an increase in patriotism. Even I remember I visited the year after and you saw still saw a lot of American flags on people's front lawns. And that continued for, well, quite a few years after. That's true. I mean, and, and obviously some of that was, uh, was good. It was a sense of, of national solidarity. Especially with the uh, you know the suffering of people in, in New York City, from parts of the U.S. which I suppose you know weren't normally sympathetic to to New York City, which is seen as more of a you know I, I don't know a liberal kind of multiracial um, you know urban environment. But you know in, in the days after, there was solidarity throughout the U.S. 
obviously the, the negative side of that uh, increase in patriotism was, you know, a sort of a, a xenophobia, uh, I suppose, a uh, fear, a paranoia. You have heard a lot of that kind of talk, uh, um, you know, in, in the in the days and not maybe not the first few days, but but certainly uh, coming in the months and years after, and there was a, certainly an increase and in, and in, uh, anti-Islamic um, activity and anti, um, you know, and, and resulting in violence in, in, in many cases. So, uh, you know, the, that kind of super patriotism had, at least from my point of view, some, some quite negative uh, effects. Edward, I don't want to go into conspiracy theories and there's so many ridiculous conspiracy theories about 9-11 and so many untrue and upsetting ones. But it is interesting the way it generated such an avalanche of of theorising, even uh, in the immediate aftermath and you know, the idea that it was a controlled explosion at the base and, you know, you read a lot about, oh, you know, the, what the Saudi government knew and, and the Bush government being aware and that there's all these different levels to the story that um, I think showed a, a, a willingness to jump on anything. I think, yes, I think it's, it's a, bit of, a bit of a shock. Um, I mean, the parallel here to some extent with JFK's assassination is quite stark. That you know, people simply couldn't get uh, you know to terms with the, with the assassination of why it happened, and so all sorts of you know conspiracy theories evolved then about you know who was involved was the mafia, this that, the next thing, and um, so too to some extent um, with nine uh, eleven. Although I I think to some extent uh, at the time I don't think people were you know doubting that there had to be a military response, that the, the United States had to take action. Um, that was uh, really strongly supported in the United States and had international backing as well. Uh, so, you know, some of these conspiracy theories tend to evolve over time. And I think it is a reflection of the shock and the nature of the actual actions. Well, tonight we are talking about 9-11 on this, the 21st anniversary of the events of September 11, 2001. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we'll be talking about the war on terror, the death of Osama bin Laden and the later long-term consequences of 9-11. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking history with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Now, to continue our discussion of 9-11, I'm delighted to be joined by J. Samuel Walker, a professional historian and the author of The Day That Shook America, A Concise History of 9-11, published by the University Press of Kansas. Samuel, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Can I begin with a question about the response of the Clinton and Bush administrations to to the activities of Al Qaeda in the in the lead up to 9/11 and whether they should have taken more action to try and prevent something like this happening? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh Clinton did more than any previous president had ever done to combat terrorism, and Clinton and his advisors were well aware that Al Qaeda was a major threat. And this was obvious after uh, al-Qaeda-sponsored bombings of American embassies in Tanzania and Kenya, and after uh, an attack on the USS Cole, a U.S. destroyer, in the fall of 2000. So they were keenly aware that they had uh, a big problem with al-Qaeda, and they were well aware of that. 
and they considered all kinds of options uh, of what to do, but all the options were not very satisfactory and uh, not worth the risk. Um, but they were aware, and they passed off to uh, President Bush when he took office in January of 2001, a series of recommendations uh, uh, based on their experience and based on their study of what could be done or should be done or might be done to deal with al-Qaeda. So Clinton viewed it as a major threat, not an immediate threat, but something that that had to be dealt with, um, and passed that information and that analysis along to the Bush administration. The Bush people, uh, from President Bush on down, uh, were not that impressed with the threat of al-Qaeda. They thought it was a problem. They thought it was something that they would have to deal with. Uh, but they didn't see it as an urgent problem. They didn't see it as an immediate problem. Um, and so they took their time. They, uh, they, they, they really had a lot of contempt for Clinton and his advisors, and they weren't willing to take the advice that they received from Clinton uh, at face value. So they undertook a major study of what to do about terrorism and what to do about al-Qaeda, uh, even in the face of the fact that all kinds of warnings were coming in through American intelligence about uh, a spectacular attack might be on the horizon. No one knew uh, where or when or how the attack might take place, but there were urgent warnings in the spring and summer of 2001 that something might be happening. Uh, but in spite of that, the Bush administration did not do very much to, uh, to deal with the threat. They did some things. Um, but they still didn't take it all that seriously, and they were working on what was called a national security presidential directive, which was going to be a statement by the president advising government agencies or ordering government agencies on what needed to be done to deal with the threat of al-Qaeda. And they started working on this document uh, early in the Bush administration, but they were uh, not hasty about it. They uh, were not... They didn't have a sense of urgency about it, uh, and that paper finally went to uh, Bush's desk on September the 10th, 2001. And do you think the tragedy was preventable if if there had been more attention paid uh, to what was happening? Yeah, um, uh, it's, it's possible. We can't say for certain. That's counterfactual history, and 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 we can't know what might have happened. Uh, I say in my book that, that, you know, if only the presidential directive had been, had been uh, pursued with more urgency, had been drafted and approved with more urgency, uh, that that might have made a difference if, if, if Bush had issued that directive, say, in the spring of, or summer of 2001, maybe the FBI and the CIA would have paid more attention to al-Qaeda operatives who were living in the country. Uh, maybe the Federal Aviation Administration would have uh, made boarding procedures more uh, more stringent than what they were uh, on September 11. So, yeah, uh, it's possible. It certainly is not certain. Uh, after the uh, attacks, after the tragedy of 9-11, uh, the Bush administration claimed, well, it wouldn't have made a difference, and, and they might be right. We don't know for certain. But um, at least I'm, I'm haunted by the thought that maybe if a presidential directive had, had, had come out earlier, the government agencies would have been more inclined to take actions that might have headed off the attacks. 
And I think we need to keep in mind it wouldn't have taken a whole lot to foil the attacks. Uh, I mean, I mean, the attacks, the attacks on, on 9/11 were exceedingly well planned and executed, um, but they could have been sidetracked uh, fairly easily if government agencies had had done more um, early in the summer. On the day of September 11, we see extraordinary acts of heroism. We see it at the World Trade Center. We see it uh, uh, when there's the attack on the Pentagon. We see it uh, on Flight 93 as well. And uh, there are various different responses from uh, uh, those who were caught up in the tragedy. Absolutely. And uh, one one point I think we have to keep in mind is that uh, the, the, the actions of the police and the, and, and the firefighters at the World Trade Center were extraordinarily uh, heroic, uh, but so were the actions of ordinary citizens, those, those uh, people who were working in the building and had to get out. Um, the buildings were evacuated in a orderly manner. Uh, 87% of the people who were in the buildings, uh, the, 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 the Twin Towers at the World Trade Center, got out uh, and that's uh, and, and that's one of the good uh, one one piece of good news about what happened on on 9/11 and uh, there's all kinds of, of stories of, of heroism by uh, and, and I say this in quotes by ordinary people doing extraordinary things one one story that I tell is a man who worked in the North Tower the first tower that was hit uh, the 69th floor, uh, and he was paraplegic. His name was John Abruzzo. Uh, and John's colleagues uh, uh, from his floor uh, carried him down the steps on what was called an vacuum chair, which is like a, a sled that can go down steps more easily than walking down the steps. And so they went from 69 down to 44, and then the stairwells were, were, were blocked so that the, uh, the vacuum chair couldn't slide down the steps. And so what they did, there were uh, eight of his colleagues, uh, they picked up the chair, they uh, took turns picking up the chair and carrying it down uh, the last 44 floors on, on the North Tower, and, and they saved John's life. And John said later, he said, these people were not emergency evacuation personnel, they were accountants. Uh, and, and so there were all kinds of stories like that of, of, of extraordinary acts of, of kindness and and, and heroism um, at the World Trade Center at, at, and, and certainly at the Pentagon uh, and of course on Flight 93 where the passengers took it upon themselves to, to attack the, uh, the terrorists who had taken over the cockpit caused the plane to crash um, and probably saved the U.S. Capitol from being destroyed. You describe it in the book, or you have a quote in the book uh, describing it as a day of agony, and I think it that captures, I think, the pain and the the tragedy and the the the, the feelings that uh, so many had on that day. Yeah, and uh, it was agony, of course, for those who were directly involved. Uh, it was agony for those of us who were not involved but were watching from afar uh, on on television or, or hearing it on on radio. Uh, and, and it was extraordinarily painful for the people of the U.S., partly because it was so shocking, but also the sights of the buildings collapsing and people fleeing and, 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 and the knowledge uh, of, of the planes crashing. And, of course, the, uh, the, the uh, crash into the South Tower, the second tower, uh, was captured live on TV so that uh, people could watch 
uh, United Flight 175 crashing into the uh, South Tower at, at, at the World Trade Center. And, and all the scenes and, and, and all of what was going on and all the death and all the destruction uh, was, was extraordinarily painful. Uh, for people across the country, and, and I, I, I can't think of any other event uh, that was more or less live uh, that has ever had that much impact uh, on, on, on the people of the United States. You described the acts of kindness and the, the various acts of heroism. On the other side, then, you also had acts of great hatred. You had people who were hijackers who were prepared to sacrifice their own lives in this suicide mission to 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 cause such destruction and how did that play out afterwards was there a a kind of an examination of why there was such hatred towards the united states yeah and that's always a big question and i mean it goes back uh, for decades uh and, and and the question that americans often ask themselves when they think about these things is why do they hate us so and that and that involves a great deal of study of American foreign policy, certainly at least since the Cold War, uh, and has to do with a lot of, of of the politics and the diplomacy, and the history, especially the history of of, of the Middle East. So, what seems irrational to us and, and is by any standard uh, was a way of life for for the terrorists, a 19 terrorists who knew they were going to die. I mean, that was that was a part of the plan. Uh, and in fact, Osama bin Laden uh, was such a charismatic man, apparently, uh, that when he, he recruited people to uh, take part in what was called the Plains Operation, uh, he made it clear that he expected them to be martyrs, um, and they accepted that. And, and I'm sure it varies from individual to individual, but, uh, but they were... Um, for, for, for reasons that were convincing to them, uh, they agreed to sacrifice their own lives for this greater cause that Osama bin Laden was sponsoring. And finally, when you look at the legacy of 9-11 in human terms, what would you see as its, its impact and its reach 21 years on? Um, it's, it still is a signal event in U.S. history. We don't hear as much about it as... as we, as we did shortly after 9-11. And, and of course, one of the major uh, effects or one of the major consequences of the attacks was the war in Afghanistan, number one, and then Iraq, number two. And, and we're still living with the consequences of that. Um, last year, we marked the 20th uh, anniversary of, of, of the 9-11 attacks, and, and, and this year is 21. And, and I think on the anniversaries, people do look back and, and, and remind themselves of the terrible event it was, what a shocking event, uh, what a gut-wrenching event, and what a terrible tragedy for, for the country. And, and I think we need to keep that in mind. Um, the, 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 the direct impact obviously kind of uh, fades away um, over time. Um, but I think it's important that we um, that we don't let it fade away too much, and that we keep it in mind what happened, why it happened, and and um, and and who the victims were. And one reason that I wrote my book was that a family from my town, who I didn't know, uh, but they lived only two blocks away. I found out later, uh, and they were on the plane that crashed 
into the Pentagon, and it was uh, a father and a mother and their two little girls aged eight and three. And they were on the plane that was hijacked uh, out of Dulles Airport uh, and crashed into the Pentagon. And, and, and one reason that I, I wrote the book was, uh, was that it was a tribute to them and to all the other people who died uh, on 9-11. Okay, well, Samuel, thanks so much for joining us tonight. J. Samuel Walker, the author of The Day That Shook America, A Concise History of 9-11, published by the University Press of Kansas. And we'll be back with more on the history of 9-11 and the events of September 11, 2001, right after this. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History on the anniversary of 9-11 as we discuss the events of September 11, 2001 and the terrible atrocity of that terrorist attack on American soil. I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Geary, Mark Pigott Professor of American History at Trinity College Dublin and Professor Edward Spears, Professor Emeritus of Strategic Studies at the University of Leeds. Edward, let's talk about what happens next because this is then uh, termed a war on terror or a war on terror is declared. You see uh, uh, military intervention in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, the search, the fruitless search for weapons of mass destruction. And it's very much broadened into uh, uh, wider objectives and it goes well beyond uh, dealing with al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. Uh, that's perfectly true. Um, uh, the war on terror, sometimes called the global war on terror, uh, evolves into what becomes known as the long war. Uh, and in a sense, it, much of it derives from the thinking, uh, if you remember, of Donald Rumsfeld, his description of the conflict as a war like none other, that this was going to be a war waged by coalitions of the willing. Um, they were going to attack uh, a tactic, and by doing so, bases of terror, sponsors of terror, he was talking about the participants being so different from previous wars, the banker's pinstripe, the programmer's grunge, and the military desert camouflage would all be playing their part. But also, he stressed from the outset, there'd be no exit strategies, no fixed rules about how to employ force. And the aim was, of course, to reassert American primacy. And Edward, in your article on 9-11 and looking at the the, the, the long-term uh, implications and the war on terror. Uh, you have a very interesting quote from Donald Rumsfeld about how this was a war like no other, but it was also how this was a war uh, abroad so that we didn't have to fight at home. So he was deliberately making connections to things that may not have anything to do with uh, the actual attack. And it reminded me a bit of, of President Truman and the Korean War about how they were fighting over there so we didn't have to be fighting over here and fighting on American soil and there was there was seemed to be two things at work that they were they were trying to to do things in foreign policy that they'd wanted to do for a long time but hadn't the opportunity but also then there did seem to be this belief that if you took the fight over there it would protect American lives at home. Uh, well that's absolutely true I mean and that is um, one of the uh, aspects of the war which Rumsfeld would defend ultimately that the principal goal in the war was to stop another 9-11 or a weapons of mass destruction attack, which would make 9-11 seem modest by comparison and do so before it happens. 
Um, they're very difficult to prove a negative, of course, um, but it was some consolation that if Americans are going to die in this war, they're going to be fighting in places like Mosul and not being civilians dying in Manhattan. So there's that aspect to it. But also you must remember you're link- you have to link this war to the ongoing problems in Iraq since the Gulf War, um, the uh, persistence of embargoes on uh, Saddam's regime, the fact that the UN inspectors have been there looking for weapons of mass destruction, uh, which had been used, of course, in the Iran-Iraq war and against the Kurds. And um, uh, these two strains of thinking become emerged, both the operations in Afghanistan and then later the operations in Iraq. Um, The linkage is pretty flimsy. There's absolutely no evidence that Saddam, a Sunni president, had anything to do with al-Qaeda or or support for al-Qaeda. And of course, Dan, that has huge implications, not just for the United States and its foreign policy, but for the rest of the world. And we see uh, conflicts that just drag on and uh, huge losses of lives on on all sides. And was this a, a disastrous turning point for American foreign policy? And did it, did it squander the goodwill that had been uh, gained for the United States after the attack? I think that's 100% true. Um, I mean, if you look at it, it was in a way extraordinary that you had a, an attack by a specific terrorist organization that was then turned into a, a war on, you know, so-called terror that took in uh, places and, and people that had nothing to do with the, with the attack. Um, you know, nobody would have thought, uh, nobody in the, in the public would have thought, I think, in, in, the, in, the, or in the world would have thought weeks after 9-11 that this was going to lead to the U.S. war in Iraq. Afghanistan, of course, um, you know, I think you can argue with the strategy there, but at least it, it, it was tied to the attack. It, it made sense that, you know, the Taliban had been harboring al-Qaeda, that, you know, to, to, to go where they were. Uh, that made a certain amount of sense. Iraq made zero sense at all. There was no connection to uh, al-Qaeda or to, to, uh, to the attack. There was no connection uh, for al-Qaeda to the, to the so-called axis of evil of uh, Iraq, Iran, and, and North Korea. So, uh, you know, it was really taken into um, uh, uh, what was this, some of the, you know, specific issue was taken into a global one. Um, and the goodwill that the U.S. had in, in the weeks after the attack you know, turned into, um, you know, real damaging, I suppose, of the American uh, reputation uh, with the with the war in Iraq, and of course, both both the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq um, turned into uh, catastrophes. But yet, President Obama was able to give the order for the for the the mission that resulted in the death of Osama bin Laden, and he was able to declare afterwards that Al Qaeda would never threaten our nation again, and it definitely. It definitely seemed to have some victories for the United States in the conflict, most notably, I suppose, the the, the killing of bin Laden. Yeah, although it's worth saying uh, on the killing of bin Laden that how different that was than the invasion of Iraq, Afghanistan and Iraq. And although Rumsfeld said it would be a war like no, no other, you know, what, what should have been clear uh, was clear to, to many after the attack was this, you know, that if future terrorist attacks were to be prevented, it would have to be through um, intelligence operations. Um, and that's ultimately what led to the killing of bin Laden. You know, it, it, it didn't, I think, have anything to do with the uh, invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. Those, in a way, were a kind of old way of, of, of military thinking um, that, that was 
uh, maladapted, I suppose, to, to taking on the, the threat of, of international terrorism. Edward, Tony Blair won three elections as Labour leader in the United Kingdom, including after, of course, 9-11. But, uh, you know, his reputation is pretty much shredded now. And uh, I don't think he'll ever be able to rehabilitate it because of uh, the way he dragged the United Kingdom into a war based on that dubious claim about weapons of mass destruction. So it did have important consequences for world leaders. It damaged American prestige. It destroyed Blair's reputation that it had consequences for the allies of the United States as well. Uh, Oh, yes. And uh, it was both Pacific countries who aligned themselves with the United States and to some extent NATO as an organization which went into um, bolster uh, matters in Afghanistan with the uh, International Security Assistance Force. So everybody was became sort of tarred with the same brush. Um, the mission accomplished was actually a banner that, this, that the naval ratings put up on the carrier Abraham Lincoln behind uh, Bush. Bush didn't actually say those words. In fact, he said the mission was going to continue, but major combat operations had ended by that stage. That was... Um, May 2003. Um, he, he was, of course, wrong, but uh, he didn't actually say mission accomplished. Um, but that was very much the message that came across in that somewhat maladroit piece of uh, you know, display. And it's fascinating how that becomes part of the the belief then and becomes part of the memory. Uh, There's that idea that because it was the banner, uh, it's then associated with him and we remember it incorrectly, we remember it uh, differently. Absolutely. And uh, uh, this war, um, so-called, it it is replete with imagery and uh, issues because it is such a different type of war. I mean, Rumsfeld was right when he said that, you know, there's no, it, it, this was going to be so different from Vietnam. There's going to be no draft. There's no war bonds. There's going to be no maps in the press about where America was going. Um, no sense of immediacy. You know, for many people, it simply didn't become personal, you know, because you didn't have an enemy you could defeat on the battlefield. There were no big sieges. There was a big information war and Al-Qaeda were pretty adept at using it um, and or our Al-Qaeda supporters. Um, but it was very, very difficult uh, for the Americans to pin down at any stage clear evidence of progress and much of what they would be claimed, like the election, the direct election of Hamid Karzai as the president of Afghanistan, would soon be tarnished by the fact that his regime was so hopelessly corrupt and focused on on Kabul itself, so there were there were real problems with uh, fighting a war like none other. There's no doubt about that. And Edward, what it also shows is that it seems to be a lot easier to get into these places and into these conflicts than it is to get out of them. And like many presidents came afterwards, you know, President Obama, President Trump, President Biden. We saw the the huge damage that uh, President Biden took to his own presidency when he did then withdraw from Afghanistan and and the regime collapsed soon after and the Taliban uh, returned so that there didn't seem to be easy answers for any of the leaders who came after. Well, that's right. And um, wiseacres would, of course, say, well, look to your history. Um, You know, the the Brits entered Afghanistan quite often in the 19th century. They did occasionally 
prevail militarily, but um, it was much easier to enter Afghanistan than to come out of the place. And the, and the, and the Soviets had exactly the same experience um, in the 1980s, uh, a long period of trying to uh, impose their will, uh, having uh, eliminated the government in Kabul. Uh, so it, it's a very difficult country and uh, terrain. Uh, there was enormous effort put into nation building. Um, there was a ludicrous amount of money uh, given to farmers to stop them growing poppies for the, for the uh, drugs trade. Um, and time and again, all these initiatives uh, really came to very little, not least of which was training an indigenous Afghan army that could maintain security. Uh, you know, vast resources were put into that. And even when the NATO forces withdraw um, from Afghanistan, they still leave people in there training these troops, giving them the, the best and the most modern of equipment. And the results, of course, we saw um, last year uh, when the Taliban swept back into power. Dan, how would you assess the legacy of 9-11? Because... Even when preparing for the show, what I found kind of challenging was that in a way this is two stories, in a way it's two different shows. It's a story about the events of September the 11th, 2001 and the, the, the terrorist attack and the casualties and the terrible deaths and all of that. But then there's the second story, which is what happens afterwards and how it's used to declare this war on terror. And there two kind of very different stories, but yet they're all part of the same bigger story. I think you're absolutely right uh, on that, Patrick. I think it's, uh, in, in a way, I mean, the, the memory of um, 9-11 itself has, you know, in the particular uh, attacks, has, has faded a lot from uh, public uh, discourse, uh, even in, in the U.S., because you kind of can't think of it without thinking about the way that the Bush administration uh, responded to it. Uh, and I think that, you know, it would, you know, because they, they saw, you know, I think it, it's clear that policymakers in the, in the Bush administration, your, uh, the neoconservatives, uh, the Cheney's and Wolf Witzes and uh, Rumsfeld, um, they had a particular strategy. They wanted to reassert American force um, uh, abroad. Um, they wanted to employ the, the military um, to you know, remake the world in a way that would be more favorable to the U.S. Uh, they couldn't possibly have, uh, have I think, uh, gotten the public on board with that, except for uh, 9/11. So, um, you know, they took that opportunity to do something they wanted to do anyway. Without which, I don't, I don't think they would have had the support. And I think the U.S., you know, among the historical lessons that were forgotten, that were the lesson of uh, was the lesson of Vietnam uh, and in the the first Gulf War under. Uh, the first Bush president, um, you know, they were very clear that the war was going to have a, a clear objective and aim and that it was going to have a clear end. Um, and that was because after the Vietnam War, American policymakers didn't want to get into an open-ended war. But after 9-11, that, that all went out uh, the window. So, yeah, in, in retrospect, I don't think it's possible to think about the attack itself without thinking about um, the response as it uh, unfolded over time. But it's certainly possible to imagine, you know, um, other responses uh, to that uh, attack. I mean, I, you know, uh, one of the uh, contingencies of history, remember Al Gore, you know, who had won the popular vote in 2000 and who, um, you know, was a, 
a few hundred votes short and uh, perhaps the Supreme Court decision short of being president in 2001, I think Gore certainly would have invaded Afghanistan as, uh, as, as Bush did. But I, I can't imagine that he would have uh, made it into this wider uh, war on terror and would have ended up invading Iraq as well. Edward, it is, it is a confusing legacy precisely because it had such wide-scale implications in terms of this war on terror and in terms of that long war in in Afghanistan and Iraq? Uh, Yes, it is. One of the issues that the Americans were, American administrations were always very keen on um, for years after the Vietnam War was to kick what was called the Vietnam Syndrome uh, the belief that the Americans couldn't, if necessary, enter a war and find a way to prevail within it. And in a sense, the first Gulf War was an example of, that was the war, if you remember, against, the, uh, against Saddam Hussein in, in, uh, in 1990, um, 1991, uh, that, uh, that that was an example of how the United States not just could fight a war, could actually profit from the war because everybody else chipped in with so much resource and support. Um, But working through a coalition uh, unravels rather badly for the Americans in uh, Kosovo, uh, even more so uh, subsequently in Libya. And they become, you know, more and more dejected uh, a, about the quality of their allies, B, about the quality of their intelligence. I mean, one of the things is the alternative to war on terror was always, you know, intelligence-based policing operation. Well, the quality of American intelligence um, in this was hardly uh, anything to write home about. And, and the third thing was that, you know, if they could act, if they could, you know, um, initially, uh, when they were bombing Afghanistan, it was almost a liberating experience. Uh, for American forces. They weren't going to be tied down by anybody else's rules of engagement. But the end result, as you rightly say, um, from all this use of military force and the the casualties taken and the costs involved, um, really doesn't add up to uh, anything other than the ability to stop al-Qaeda from mounting anything similar to 9-11 in the ensuing period. And the fact, Edward, that there hasn't been a, another attack, and of course that was the great fear uh, back 21 years ago, was that because the Americans succeeded in crippling al-Qaeda? Was it because of the heightened well, security measures that have been taken or um, some other well, reason? It, it, it certainly helped me. A, there was a lot of intelligence gathered at the very first um, attacks on the uh, al-Qaeda bases. But there was also enormous intelligence gathered when they killed Osama. Um, uh, was 110 flash drives, five computers, armfuls of laptops, and 10 years of journals. I mean, they they, they couldn't have um, had a better understanding of the organization after that than um, the intelligence gathered over you know a 20-year period beforehand. So um, you know there were there were breakthroughs in this war, and um, it was interesting how. The uh, war in Iraq morphs into the war against ISIS, which is an organization which had nothing really to do with al-Qaeda and became an entirely different type of threat uh, within the Middle East.
Well, my thanks to my guests for joining me tonight on this, the anniversary of those attacks on the 11th of September 2001 to remember what happened and its legacy for the world. My thanks to Dr. Daniel Geary, Mark Piggott, Professor of American History at Trinity College Dublin and Professor Edward Spears, Professor Emeritus of Strategic Studies at the University of Leeds. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to Marisa Sullivan, my producer, Peter Malloy on sound. We've been Talking History. Thanks for listening.